Welcome, everybody, to the panel on um, performance, textuality, and orality, although those words actually maybe are supposed to be in a different order, but those three ideas. Um, my name is Glenda Goodman, and um, I am really happy to welcome you to this roundtable. We're going to be um, uh, hearing from five, uh, five different presenters, and then we'll get a comment from our moderator, and then we'll have just a bigger discussion about these topics as they pertain to bibliography and book history. So without any further ado, I'm going to introduce the five panelists and our moderator, and then turn it over to them. As you can see, they've already organized themselves in terms of their presentations, which I really appreciate. First, we'll be hearing from Bethany Sensor, um, who is a visiting assistant professor in musicology at the Crane School of Music at SUNY Potsdam. She has a PhD and a DMA, a doctorate of musical arts in harpsichord uh, performance and in music history and music theory, um, and also a master's in music and keyboard instrument performance. Um, so a musician as well as so a scholar. And she's working on a monograph about 18th century all-male part song clubs in London. Um, second, we will hear from Andrew Ferguson, who is a visiting assistant professor of English at Washington and Lee University. And Andrew works with um, in text and media of the last hundred odd years. Um, his current project demonstrates how modes of play developed by video gamers can expand interpretive ranges of an array of um, modernist and contemporary novels. Um, after that, we will hear from Leslie Gay, uh, who is associate professor at the University of Tennessee. Um, Leslie works on U.S. music cultures and um, African diasporic musics, popular forms, technoculture, sound and media studies, and questions of racial and national identities. Um, and he is working on a, a collaborative project right now called Music and Technoculture. Um, which uh, examines emerging and dynamic relationships among music, culture, and technology. Um, fourth, we will have Laura. You can tell I didn't actually put these in the right order, but I did mm -hmm. number them. So there, um, fourth, we will hear Laura Helton, uh, who is an assistant professor of print and material culture studies at the Department of English locally here at the University of Delaware. Her current book, her book project, uh, Collecting and Collectivity, Black Archival Publics, 1900 to 1950, examines the emergence of African-American archives to show how historical recuperation shaped forms of racial imagination in the early 20th century. Um, and she also has a history of um, a background in working in social history and archives, um, uh, uh, doing archivist, archival work with American social movements. And then our last presenter is Jesse P. Carlsberg, who is the Senior Digital Scholarship Strategist at the Emory Center for Digital Scholarship. Um, Jesse's research analyzes connections between race, place, folklorization, and American music, um, and he's focused on editions of the Sacred Harp, that is the Shape Note tune book first published in Georgia in 1844. Um, he also has a, he's a co-project coordinator for Redex and is a senior is the editor in chief of Sounding Spirit, which is a collection of editions of vernacular sacred American music um, using the platform published by the University of North Carolina Press. Our comment will come from our moderator is Kate Van Orden, who is the Dwight P. Robinson Jr. Professor of Music at Harvard University. Um, Kate's contribution to music and the history of the book is inestimable, and I direct you to her three books, um, Music and the Cultures of Print from 2000, which she edited, 
Music Authorship and the Book in the First Century of Print from 2013, and Materialities, Books, Readers, and the Chanson in 16th Century Europe in um, 2015. And she is also a professional bassoonist, so very musical panel. Um, and with that, I will turn it over to Bethany. Thanks, Bethany. Thank you. Thank you. English printers during the 18th century published a variety of books that included the phrase pocket companion in their titles. This phrase typically signaled that the source contained the most distilled basic information pertinent to its topic, as in the pocket companion or every man his own lawyer, or the historian's pocket companion or memory's assistant. Within this publishing environment, George Smart's vocal pocket companion represents an exception to the norm. This particular source consists of two sets of harmonized songs printed on playing size cards, with 52 cards in each set. As an unconventional hybrid of score and social pastime that was literally pocket-sized, the vocal pocket companion raises several questions. For what performers and performance spaces were these cards created? How might musicians realize music printed on these musical cards differently from a performance from a more traditional score? How did singing intersect with other leisure activities? By reframing repertoire that was in the most cases that was in most cases already known to his intended audience through earlier anthology publications, Smart would have impacted both its reception and its performance. Roger Chartier claims, quote, changes in material topography have profoundly changed the uses, circulation, and understanding of the same text. Smart was a musical instrument maker and music printer with a London shop called the Music Warehouse. He devised the vocal pocket companion around 1785 as a collection of catches, glees, cannons, epitaphs, and rounds for two and three voices. Around 1789, Smart issued a second collection by the same name, this time containing songs for two, three, and four voices. All of the cards in the first collection are one-sided, comprising a total of 50 songs, hence each song is one page in length. They feature songs by both 17th and 18th century English composers. The second collection, by contrast, includes solely 18th century repertoire. In this later deck, the majority of cards are double-sided, reflecting longer, primarily two-page songs with a total of 32 songs engraved on 30 cards. Six extant copies of the first and second vocal pocket companions exist in only four libraries worldwide. Three first collections at the British Bodleian and Huntington libraries, and three second collections at the British Bodleian and Lewis Walpole libraries. The vocal pocket companion's card format suggests that it may have functioned as a symbol of leisure for middle and upper class amateur musicians. The title page provides clues supporting this view. Each vocal pocket companion collection is dedicated to a female socialite. The dedication to the first collection reads, humbly inscribed to Mrs. Crew by her most obedient and obliged servant, G. Smart. Frances Ann Crew is the wife of Baron John Crew, a Whig member of Parliament. She cultivated a career as a political hostess and had a reputation for throwing lavish parties. The wording for the second dedication to Lady Young is similar. Lady Elizabeth Young was the daughter and heir of a wealthy London pewterer and wife of Parliament member Sir George Young. It is possible 
that these female dedicatees bestowed commissions on Smart as payment for his dedications. As precedent, the wives of other important personages are known to have acted as patrons for 18th century Glee anthologies. Women also comprised a substantial portion of the consumer base for Glees, especially in the 1780s and 90s. Dedicatory references to notable women gestures to the card's potential female audience. At the same time, the tradition of men toasting women of admirable social stature played an important role in all-male vocal clubs since the mid-18th century, and dedications to women echoed this culture of toasting. The card's financial value reinforces their status as a fashionable commodity. Priced at 10 shillings, 6 pence, these cards sold for the same price as full-size anthologies of part song. Sheet music, by comparison, was typically one shilling, which itself was the usual daily wage for most laborers. The vocal pocket companion's cost delimited its audience, thus rendering it as a status symbol. The novel appeal of Smart's product would have been enhanced by the marked increase in Glee publications during the last two decades of the 18th century. Thus, in publishing musical cards, Smart repurposed a familiar repertoire for a burgeoning middle and upper class consumer base. In doing so, he exemplifies the impetus of early capitalist merchants to identify new methods of commodification. While it is likely impossible to ascertain the economic success of the first collection, the release of a second collection around five years later, together with the advertisement where maybe had the first collection and variety of new music, implies that it had been profitable. The commodification and dissemination of leisure and print form supports a distinctive feature of part song as amateur music designed to be experienced not only as performance but as socializing. The Noblemen and Gentlemen's Catch Club, a prominent all-male vocal club in London, set a powerful model for song as socializing by gathering weekly for three quarters of the year to eat, drink, and sing. Catch Club manuscripts are bespattered with candle wax and wine stains, signaling late nights of revelry. The harmonized aspect of part song thus shapes this convivial environment by implying a sense of social harmony, cultivated among those who had made a significant commitment to regularly attending club meetings and participating in harmonized singing. The materiality of the cards implies the social settings in which they were used. Historian Natalie Zaman Davis argues that, quote, we can best understand the connections between printing and the people if we consider a printed book not merely as a source for ideas and images but as a carrier of relationships. Focusing on the format of a musical score, as well as details concerning its layout, print design, paper texture, and handwritten annotations, offers an opportunity to study the social life of the text. Coincid coincidentally, Van Orden's description of a scene in a 16th century painting involving musicians reading from Chanson Park books likens their music making to playing a card game. Van Orden describes the scene as depicting, quote, the atmosphere of a card game in which players constantly judge each other's hands, for no one can see how all the parts fit together from his or her own part book. The need for ensemble keeps the singers looking up, leaning in, beating time, and this despite the fact that each part book contains notes and words which are hard to read simultaneously. Even though the vocal pocket companion cards were printed in score rather than part book format, as was customary for these repertoires, I suggest that Van Orden's description is applicable. Performers of this later part song repertoire need not be as concerned with the alignment of parts, but they would have experienced additional ensemble considerations, including the synchronization of ornaments, tempo changes, sectional repeats, dynamics, and articulations. All of these things were carefully indicated in the music. 
I expect that in performance, each singer held a separate card, as opposed to all gathering around one. This observation is based on the accidental inclusion of two songs in the Yale Library collection that clearly do not belong to the second vocal pocket companion. In all other library sources, the first song of Smart's second collection is With Freedom Blessed on page three. The Yale set, however, begins with three copies of a double-sided card titled Epitaph on an Old Woman Who Sold Pots at Chester and paginated one to two. No composer is indicated, and all three of these cards are identical in size to each other, yet smaller than the other cards in Smart's deck. Furthermore, three copies of yet another three-voice song are also inserted within the Yale source. Double-sided and paginated seven to eight, they contain a glee titled Soon As I Saw Those Beauteous Eyes. These cards are even smaller than the previously mentioned epitaph and are gilt-edged. Such a decorative presentation and attention to detail certainly carries a luxury connotation, ideal for conveying leisure. Soon as I saw those beauteous eyes must have originated in yet another mystery card collection. It is not unreasonable to visualize a party in which guests sang songs from various musical card decks. In the midst of the lively singing, cards could have been misplaced in the wrong decks. Penciled annotations on individual cards support the notion that they were used in performance, as do faded stains in the margins, possibly caused by soiled fingers or drink remnants. In the Bodleian Library's second collection, there are check marks in the index preceding the duet, Alas, That Air I Know, and the glee, Breathe Soft, representing a conscious effort to emphasize these specific songs. In the British Library first collection, 17 cards contain penciled X's in the upper left corners, once again distinguishing them in some manner. Textual emendations are also present in both collections. In the catch, care thou canker, of this source, the word dies has been added to the second phrase in the alto voice. It had been accidentally omitted from the original text. A similar textual emendation occurs in the Huntington Library first collection. To the catch, hark the Bonnie Christ church bells. In this example, the original text to Henry Aldrich's song is correct. So the amender may have applied the alternate text to either update the syntax or reflect an unwritten practice. The top voice's printed text, they sound so woundy great, was replaced with they sound, they sound so great. And e, and e is penciled into the first measure, second staff, perhaps as a substitution for the first two words, they sound, so as to only state those words once in their revised form. Similarly, in the lowest voice's printed text, tingle, tingle, ting goes the small bell at night to call the beerers home. Beerers seems to have been replaced with drunkards. While some of the annotations and edits thus mentioned may have been done by library catalogers or curators, in addition to these revisions, notes have also been altered. In an anonymous three-voice catch titled Oh Beauteous Eyes, published in the first Vocal Pocket Companion. The unaltered British Library print is shown above and the Huntington Library card is shown below. The printed 16th note ornaments were whitened out and replaced with a handwritten E appoggiatura on the downbeat, presumably to lessen the dissonance that otherwise occurs between the two lower voices. And the next line of music, the voice crossing, originally occurring between the two lower voices, is replaced with a newly composed melody, which anticipates the written in appoggiatura of the next downbeat. 
The triplet in the lower voice is omitted and also replaced with an appoggiatura, creating a double appoggiatura, which leads into the printed double appoggiatura on beat three. These modifications may have been wrought for ease of harmonized singing, as amateur singers should have been able to sing in parallel thirds. On the other hand, the added ornamentation may represent an attempt to update the then unpopular catch into a style more reminiscent of the glee. It appears that Smart's intended audience was one of wealthy amateurs already familiar with the repertoire, who possessed enough musical training to realize the songs in performance. Focusing on the materiality of the vocal pocket companion and thinking about the commodification of music in Georgian capitalism thus allows for productive conjecture regarding the intended purposes of these cards. As a creative business venture attempting to turn a profit, as a status symbol indicative of leisure pursuits, as a means of constructing and circulating an English vocal canon, and it seems a successful integration of song and play. Thank you. See how this ends up going. Let's see. Um, so this is catching them all. The video game performance and the bibliography of play. <clears throat> try to speak back. I'm usually very loud enough. Um, for almost as long as there have been video games, players have not only been trying to hone their skills on their favorite machines, but also seeking out ways to share their discoveries and achievements. With the advent of personal recording devices, this meant uh, aiming a camcorder at the screen of an arcade cabinet um, so as to capture every minute of a record high score attempt. Um, for a game such as Donkey Kong, this could mean over three hours of recording. Uh, for this one, this game, which is called Nibbler, um, it, upwards of 40 hours, um, and ultimately an entire stack of, uh, where did I go? There we go. An entire stack of video cassettes that someone would later have to laboriously watch to make sure there was no shenanigans in the mix anywhere. Um, in the 21st century, expanded bandwidth has made it possible to capture and share videos online, leading to the growth of online communities devoted to various games, uh, gathered loosely under the blanket term Let's Play, or LP for short, as in Let's Play Super Mario Galaxy. A Let's Play captures the experience of playing through a game either as a series of screenshots with accompanying text, video capture with a commentary tra track, or a mix of both. Depending on the style and level of detail, uh, LPs can span months, even years of engagement with a single text. Um, they can just as easily burn out and be abandoned a session or two in. While originally developed as a mean of, means of nostalgically revisiting games uh, experienced in childhood, such as Oregon Trail, uh, the form has become a highly varied genre, including everything from collaborative playthroughs to straightforward how-tos, um, parodies, technical breakdowns, there's a lot of different forms. Um, and over time, it's folded in various different communities of play, um, including uh, speedrunning, where you try to skip as much of a, as possible of a game to finish it uh, very quickly. Um, machinima, which uses games as sort of impromptu movie sets. Um, and glitching, which seeks out vulnerabilities within a game's code and exploits them to pursue, pr uh, produce a variety of effects, um, many of which have no bearing on finishing the game. So if you lodge Mario in a wall, he can get out eventually, but he goes to a place that he can't escape from. You can't finish the game. Amid such a proliferating mass of text, um, and I do mean proliferating, uh, it's on the order of tens of thousands of hours being uploaded to YouTube uh, every minute, um, and hundreds of thousands of players uh, streaming live on the Twitch uh, platform at any given moment, um, I'm faced with the question of how to approach this bibliographically. 
um, video game bibliographies, or often ludographies, um, are already a vexed matter, one that even at its simplest must take the player into account. It isn't sufficient just to cite a particular game, its publisher, its year of release. Uh, you also have to note in detail the hardware, uh, the console and its version, or the underlying uh, computer and OS in the case of desktop gaming. Um, the software, including the version of the game, if it's been patched or updated at any point, um, which happens uh, often without the player's knowledge or consent. They'll just patch things out, so you, sometimes the game will change and you can't reach old versions of it. This is especially bad with, with smartphone games. Um, for record attempts, they often note down the circumstances and location of the play. Um, sometimes they even note like the ambient temperature and the layout of the electrical grid. These things can all affect like arcade machines um, in, from, in some cases. Um, so one might see from this how the standard task of collation can prove uh, nearly insuperable, as what is possible in one set of circumstances might be completely impossible and uh, irreproducible in another. And that's just the level of the text. Um, any bibliographic accounting of the LP form has a great deal more to track. How does one set about collating textual instances that may differ by as little as a frame of an animation or a pixel of screen space, or as much as the entirety of the recorded experience? How does one allow for the varying layers of commentary surrounding the object um, and the interaction between those layers, including, at a minimum, the players' and audiences' live commentary and conversations, and the subsequent comments by later viewers uh, and by authenticators of, of these videos. How do you record the paratextual traces from the archival process itself, from the recording tools, media platforms, web browsers, and computer hardware involved in any playback? Um, how do you account for extenuating circumstances, such as play in the context of a live marathon, um, which might feature additional metagaming factors, such as having to perform a number of push-ups or eat super spicy foods when certain external goals are met? Um, before I get us in any deeper, let me focus on a particular game to demonstrate some of the problems and opportunities inherent in the form. Uh, the Pokemon franchise is inherently even obsessively bibliographic. Um, the basic operations are collecting, um, as in gotta catch them all, um, and comparing, a comparison in the form of uh, combat between various of the Pokemon you and your friends and rivals have collected. Um, it even builds in operations such as collation. For instance, the first Pokemon game was actually released as two versions of the same game, Pokemon Blue and Pokemon Red. Um, there's slight differences between them, the, the color uh, uh, palette obviously being the most striking, but some Pokemon appear only in one game and not the other. Uh, so that if you want to compile a complete list, or as they call it, a Pokedex, of uh, all 151 uh, creatures, that requires using the then-revolutionary GameLink cable to swap them between cartridges. Um, However, even within a single cartridge, uh, there are differences between the Pokemon. They appear uh, you know, randomly determined um, levels um, within a certain range, randomly determined statistics, um, all of which can prove immensely important um, in the sort of mathematical manipulations that go into high-level play of the game. However, the truly dedicated Pokemon enumerator can't stop there, for there are also the Pokemon which don't appear. Um, in any game of any size, much less as one of, as expansive as Pokemon, there are bound to be some gaps in the code. And those who know even a little about coding can start making educated guesses as to where to look for them. For instance, I mentioned that there are 151 Pokemon in this first game, but that number's sort of a red flag because then the variable of Pokemon ID would be stored as two hexadecimal characters in the code with a maximum of 256 possibility. That means 105 left over, 105 slots that aren't being used explicitly by the game. Um, 105 potential new Pokemon to catch and train, if only you can find a way of getting at all of that, that hidden data. 
Um, put it X there. So, um, so you end up with, uh, after all of this trial and error, you end up, um, even Nintendo themselves, like the company started spreading false and true information about how to catch like these, these uh, what they came to be called glitched Pokemon. Um, and so as people start poking around the hexadecimal code, um, which is uh, exactly like it looks like there, um, and they started to find ways to capture some of these, uh, these enigmatic data gaps, um, ending up with, with fairly stable ways to catch ones like um, A, uh, H poke, um, 80 feet tall, 6,099 pounds, um, and ungmump. <laughs> now, chief, chief among these was uh, was missing no, um, because it was called because the error the error triggered when the game tries to load that hex from its database doesn't find a number. It's literally a missing a missing number. Um, but the benefits there go beyond just filling up this sort of like this zero 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 slot that should be at the top of your Pokedex there. Um, you could do a further glitch from that point that allowed you to duplicate items, including ones that, that made your Pokemon better. So you could just get immensely powerful Pokemon without any other effort just after you, after you did this. Now, given you might run into these glitches by accident, it didn't take long for players of the game to look for larger-scale, world-altering glitches um, of the sort that make the game text basically unrecognizable. Um, these are accomplished through various means of manipulating game data to do something it's not set out to do, and then either to fill in the gaps with nonsense data, but the right kind, stable nonsense data, or to leave the gap open to be filled in by other means. Um, I, I won't get too deeply into the technical aspects here, but let me just glance at a few of these modes in passing. Um, so first is a mode of, of Pokemon called uh, Reverse Badge Order, um, which basically means you encounter all the bosses backwards. So instead of you know, going from easy to hard, um, you go from hard to easy. You don't start out with your um, you know, beating up your best your neighborhood friend, um, and then gym leaders in each town, you know, taking over towns basically, and then the Elite Four. Um, you, you would eventually just, uh, you would go straight to the Elite Four, straight to the top, um, and then you would work your way back down again and, and finish off by, by beating that brat next door. Um, and this takes a lot of, uh, the manipulations this takes involves essentially not moving your character to the locations. You, you alter the game world so that it meets you. Um, and I'm not sure, let me see if I can, oh, okay, we'll play. I don't like when oh, we'll I do this. the mash because it's easy. Very, very quickly. So you just see the game map moving beneath the character here in a moment as it, as it goes to them. Don't screw up the movement. So that's that, the, uh... Alright, I should save All right, come on, go away. So that is the, um, that's the game map moving around them. Um, where am I here? Um, another one is uh, arbitrary code execution. This is not um, unique to, are you gonna go away from me here? There we go. This is not unique to um, games. So uh, in this example, they've, uh, somebody has altered Super Mario World to play Pong within it. Um, <laughs> But, um, and so what is involved in these games is usually um, loading up, well, we will get there. Um, I'll skip this example, just, uh, I want to get to the last one, but the, basically somebody loaded all of Tetris into Pokemon. Um, just by delivering, opening up a, a gap in the code and delivering a, pl a payload, an automated payload that allowed you to play Tetris from within Pokemon, because it's a completely different game. 
Um, We're about out of time. Okay, so I'll, let me, I'll finish. So there's a way of beating, beating the game where you do it in zero seconds, basically. And you manipulate the, the game to do that. Go away. Um, so let me bring it back to bibliography uh, by noting that I, I don't actually think we've left bibliography this entire time. Um, these astonishing results generating by the methods of textual manipulation are made possible uh, through mastery of the text, requiring thorough investigations of all the factors um, that I mentioned above. Um, it's a task so monumental that it requires a collective effort. Um, one of the greatest features of these communities is how eager they are to, to shout out, to give credit to all of the people who have made their individual runs possible. Um, there's an immense amount of work left to be done on the bibliography of video games. Um, and, uh, I and I, but I think it's subsumed in the study of bibliography generally in, in, a, main, in a mode, something like uh, Dwight Conkergood, the performance theorist, has, a, has an idea called um, co-performative witnessing. In counting an event, textual or otherwise, the bibliographer acts as witness, the witness is bibliographer. Um, we're all at play with our objects as they are in play with us and with the community around us. This what a game series like Pokemon or a form like the LP shows is that the wider practice of bibliography has always functioned as a form of communal collaborative play. Thank you very much. So while I'm shifting slightly with my setup, I want to mention that while uh, as we much of often we see people talking about uh, a manuscript or a book as we saw today. Well, first of all, I want to thank uh, Linda Goodman for organizing this panel. I'm really excited to be here, and for my co-presenters on this session, it's really nice here. So uh, now, one more thing. Uh, so while often people are focusing on a manuscript or a book or something like this, I'm actually focusing on a song and its performance or performances. So I'm focusing on this song uh, called The Frog Song. Uh, May Irwin, among the most successful North American entertainers from the U.S. Reconstruction through World War I, appeared regularly in New York theater and vaudeville. Known as a coon shouter, a singer in the legacy of blackface minstrelsy, uh, Irwin's performances, recordings, and song sheets found wide currency across public cultures. Irwin's biography, like this era of North American music, remains underexplored in scholarship, despite this period's importance for music publishing, media, and entertainment industries. Her legacy continues to resonate today uh, displaying a public retention that marks shifts across several literacies and oralities, and that questions simple notions about relationships among music, race, and history. My exploration of Irwin, her music, and its circulations employs Jonathan Stern's notion of mediality, the social and technological webs that connect people and promote communication. Stern argues that the hazy ontological materiality of the audiophile format MP3 directs inquiries away from a single medium to emphasize constellations of behaviors, social and technological institutions, and ideologies. For Irwin, I consider similar conflations of music as social and performative practices as material commodity, technology, and memory. 
The connections and interrelated materialities of song publishing, theatrical performance, and audio recording help to interrogate our notions of materiality. As Husi Parika points out, media structure how things are known in the world and give material specificity to abstract concepts. Irwin's story also aligns with Jane Bennett's notion of thinghood, the connections between humans and things, the ways in which the us and the it slip slide into each other. And I argue that the effective, affective power of music as a biographical object perform human lives. Irwin's career and the example of her frog song demonstrates mediality in their responses to performance, transmission, and technologies. From the 1880s, women's presence on North American stages increased significantly. Canadian-born May Irwin established herself as a successful performer and a businesswoman by changing, challenging social restrictions using her music and humor to push the boundaries of taste and propriety. In 1895, Irwin formed her own company, staging and playing the lead role in her first Broadway production, The Widow Jones. This three-act farce established her reputation and defined key elements of her stage persona, highlighting her powerful voice, comic energy, and substantial physique. One newspaper critic described Irwin with gladiator shoulders, soldiers, the tread of a Goliath, and the nervous energy of a locomotive. This physicality also challenged sexual norms at the time when Irwin's body was projected both through her live presence on stage and through her appearance in the new media of film. Mediality also arises in Irwin's racial representations and recalibrations. With her performances of so-called darky music, she established herself as a coon shouter, a performer who specialized in so-called coon songs featuring syncopated tunes and racial dialect. The extensive use of this, the offensive term coon demonstrates turn of the century American racism. Many early coon shouters, like Irwin, were white, rotund women whose performances of racialized songs, songs differed from those of their male black-faced predecessors. As Allison Kibler notes, the meeting shifted, sometimes dramatically, at other times subtly, as white women adopted racial masquerades in vaudeville. As Irwin challenged sexual and racial conventions, her career encompassed new te techniques in the music publishing industry with her stage successes matched by the popularity of her song sheets. Central to this medial practice connecting stage to song were the prominent displays of her name and image on the song publications. Irwin's The Frog Song demonstrates this co the continued circulation and changing significance of her music. Published as a song sheet the same year it premiered in the New York production of The Swell, Miss Fitzwell, with Irwin in the title role, it was an immediate hit across the United States. Let's listen to an excerpt and note the text here references the song sheet, not the 1907 recording, and the differences between the two are very significant. 
For many Americans, Irwin's song might represent a not-so-innocent sketch of the frog's foolish encounters across rural and industrial spheres, the frog upending an imagined pastoral ideal. Simultaneously, the song concerns social control of African Americans, noticeable in the substitution of the song sheet's word neighbors for the N-word, heard on Irwin's recording. It celebrates a vicarious experience of white authority policing a black protagonist that confirmed negative racial traits, justifying increasing segregation throughout, uh, throughout the Jim Crow US. The frog is portrayed as idle, seeking mischief and crossing boundaries. Such, such songs found popularity among African Americans and in the Southern United States, a fact that challenges assumptions about race geography and taste. Variants of the frog song continue to cha challenge social norms into the 21st century, appearing in folk revival performances and recordings of the children's song, The Foolish Frog by Pete Seeger. Charles Seeger transcribed the song from Irwin's recording and compiled it with, coupled it with a story used to entertain his own children. Pete Seeger performed and recorded The Foolish Frog many times and published an illustrated book, children's book, by, the same, by this name. These Seeger versions erase racial elements from the song's circulation and context, rendering it uncontested, playful, and childlike. Subsequently, Seeger's The Foolish Frog has been recorded by others appearing on numerous North American recordings. The currency of the frog song marks an extending genealogy of mediality which highlights its fluidity in encompassing orality and literacies. And Irwin's opening hook resounds today too as a children's hand clapping game song down by the river of the hanky panky. A YouTube search uncovers dozens of related children's performances, personal documents in various social contexts from playgrounds to parties. They come mostly from North America and the English-speaking world, but a few from further afield, including one from an orphanage in Indonesia. With much creative output centered on children's communities, encouraging, uh, sorry, children's communities, such videos display a new DIY approach toward Irwin's song encouraging personal reflections, reinterpretation, and recontextualization. They display specific local identities first grade classmates, on a playground, and so forth. Further, the recordings are made available globally for consumption, circulating freely, and decommodified. This song's circulation and interpretation remind us how performance traditions intertwine orality and literacy as shaped, shared, and regenerated by media technologies. I hear in these examples shifting ontologies of music and performance, with the indices of social and technological mediality as the song vibrates as a thing from Irwin's time and as a historical yet living object that remains with us today. Thank you. So 19th century American slave narratives in print 
from Britton Hammond's narrative of the uncommon sufferings to Harriet Jacobs, incidents in the life of a slave girl, have been the subject of intensive bibliographic study, even as there is still much to learn. But what of the other slave narratives, those that were recorded in the 1930s by field workers who traveled the US South interviewing elderly survivors of slavery and emancipation? Beginning in 1929, African-American historians and sociologists recorded on paper the oral testimony of an aging generation of freed people. These transcriptions, a precursor to the better known collecting effort that was sponsored by the Works Progress Administration in the late 1930s, and which would also, um, the, the WPA narratives would also be recorded as, on, as sound on directed disc machines. But these earlier 1929 transcriptions took place at historically black colleges in Tennessee, Kentucky, and Louisiana. So at Fisk University in Nashville, Ophelia Settle, who was a young black sociologist, drove her car through the rutted back roads of Tennessee collecting life histories from local elders with memories of enslavement. At Southern University uh, in Louisiana, John B. Cade, the historian, assigned his students in the extension program, <coughs> summer students who during the school year were teachers in rural schools around Louisiana and Texas. He assigned them to interview community members about slavery. And at Kentucky State University a few years later, L.D. Reddick, a young historian who would go on to become the first biographer of Martin Luther King Jr., formed a team of interviewers to collect ex-slave narratives in the field, a project that became the model for the nationwide WPA collecting project initiated by the white folklorist John Lomax. As the generation of formerly enslaved people, those who had survived emancipation were reaching old age, these collectors framed their work in urgent terms preventing the disappearance of an archive that had not yet been archived. The way these collectors titled their projects when they turned interview material into prose signaled the complicated relationship between history and inscription, speech and storage. Settle called her project an unwritten history of slavery. This is from the 1945 pamphlet where she compiled some of these narratives. Actually, this is a digitized copy of the 1960 microfilm edition of her 1945 pamphlet. Um, so she called it an unwritten history of slavery. Um, and here, uh, John Cade, when he compiled the narratives his students collected in a Journal of Negro History article, titled it Out of the Mouths of Ex-Slaves. Now, the unwritten is, of course, an invention of writing. And the category of unwritten history is a back formation of history itself, a rendering of the non-discursive as history's prospect, out of which, if saved, writers could then write history. To transcribe these narratives from oral form was to write them down in order that they might later be written up, usually as prose, and usually, and usually reframed by the historian's own narrative voice. The earliest use of these materials, in fact, in the 1930s and 1940s was to quote-unquote publish them, but repackaged as folk vignettes with little trace of the interview context that produced them. So this is the table of contents from Ophelia Settle's um, collection from the field recordings um, that she transcribed. And you can see she's, she's, they're not organized by the, the narrative of the person interviewed, but by these kind of folk vignettes. And you can see what happens as they move into these published or semi-published forms. So this is, the, this is the beginning of Ophelia Settle's transcript. So the, um, 
maybe not the original TypeScript, but some early uh, TypeScript version of her interview with a Mr. Hewitt, an ex-slave in Nashville. And you see traces in her TypeScript of the conversation that produced this transcript, right? So um, she has she has transcribed uh, Hewitt saying, well, ladies, referring to Ophelia and the, um, the other interviewer who was accompanying her for this particular interview, interview, well, ladies, I can't tell you nothing except I was treated pretty bad, knocked and kicked around like I was a mule. There's an, uh, other examples in the transcripts of these conversations that take place. For example, in this typescript of her interview with a Ms. Mr. Huddleston and the Mesdames Sutton and Moore in 1931, here Mr. Huddleston asks the interviewer a question, do you know what a slide was? It was a kind of wagon that, that men pulled, right? So you, here you have the, the tables turned, right, and the interviewee asking a question. In Settle's published version of excerpts from some of these narratives, the conversational production of the narrative is gone. It's become prose um, rather than dialogue. So this is an example from that 1945 compilation that she made. Here in John Cade's article, Out of the Mouth of Slaves, he's used a different uh, citational practice. He quotes from his students' reports on their interviews and um, then records the fact of those encounters between the young teachers and their elders as footnotes to the article, right? Um, so the quoting, uh, citing the students' interactions with their relatives and members of their communities. Here, story becomes record, familial relationships become citation, and speech is condensed into the economy of the footnote. So to capture unwritten history was to transform memory into speech speech into sound and transcriptions, sound and transcription into citation and prose. Those formal and material migrations would save the unwritten, but also, of course, erase it, for they could not transpose the unsaid or the unheard, the inaudible, or the untranslatable. These questions of fidelity and transcription, of capture and erasure, have long been central to scholarly debates about orality, writing, and print. And indeed, scholars who work on slavery and those who work on African-American history and literature of this interwar period, 1917 to 1940, when these interviews were conducted, have long debated the politics of the WPA narratives, the later set um, of interviews, most of which were conducted by white Southerners, right? So not coming out of, these, uh, out of the black colleges and run by black historians and sociologists. But beyond the politics of the written, unwritten at the moment of recording, there's also a bibliographical politics that I want to mention. In their preservation, storage, cataloging, enumeration, and digitization, the 1929 ex-slave narratives that were conducted at historically black colleges and universities have exhibited a bibliographic fragility, a fragility that's born of how sound eludes enumeration, how manuscripts, typescripts, and recording elude catalogs, and how especially in small libraries or repositories, the category of other material eludes access. Ironically, what were described then as unwritten histories have themselves lapsed into the unwritten, for they've been far less preserved than the late 1930s WPA narratives. L.D. Reddick's interviews uh, from Kentucky seem to have been lost, the Louisiana interviews that John Cade students conducted, too, are lost. We know that they happened only because of those footnotes in Cade's <coughs> Journal of Negro History article. 
What we have from Cade instead is another set of ex-slave interviews that he directed several years later when he had moved to Prairie View College in Texas. And those have been on deposit at Southern University for decades, but not cataloged. And they're only now becoming accessible. Ophelia Settle's interview transcripts have been preserved at Fisk, at least in part, but they're embedded in an enormous manuscript collection, the Charles S. Johnson papers, that emit no metadata about the presence of the transcripts. Documents that originated in sound and conversation don't have an easy place in a collection of office records. So the interviews are interfiled alongside correspondence and memoranda, which being more standard um, categories for archival description are what appear in the finding aid. Right? So you have to know you're looking for Ophelia Settle to find her material and then go through her correspondence to then find these transcripts. Um, so the, the, the interview context doesn't make it into the finding aid. Unlike the other pre-WPA unlike the other pre-WPA narratives, um, these field recordings exist, right? They haven't been lost, but they've escaped enumeration. Instead, what has come to stand in for nearly all of this, this era of ex-slave recording projects are the edited transcripts and discs of WPA-sponsored interviews that are stored at the Library of Congress. The WPA interviews um, are a famously contested set of records considered indispensable and impossible to use in equal measure. Their fame owes much to the Library of Congress's large-scale cataloging efforts in the 1940s and a published compendium of excerpts called Lay My Burden Down by Benjamin Botkin, who organized the interviews for the library shortly after they were collected. That early infusion of resources, federal resources, for organizing, cataloging, and editing has produced a long afterlife for those WPA interviews. They were taken up by a new generation of slavery scholars in the 1970s. They were gathered and published in a multi-volume set that same decade by George Rawick, who republished, interestingly, Ophelia Settle's um, 1945 pamphlet, but didn't go back to the Fisk transcripts. Um, and recently, they, these, um, they've benefited from the Library of Congress's sound preservation work and their digitization initiatives. Moreover, the vast records of the Federal Writers Project at the National Archives have allowed scholars to piece together the material history of the WPA interviews, the questionnaires and paperwork that structured the recording and transmission of vernacular speech into typescript and then print. The majority of subsequent research on ex-slave narratives has depended on the availability of those tools bypassing the recordings produced at historically black colleges, which were not part of the stream of state-financed material that went to the Library of Congress. Thus, even as these 1929 projects were invested in preserving the unwritten, they would themselves persist only at the very edge of the bibliographic storage and cataloging that enables writing. Hello, everybody. Uh, thank you all for being here, and thanks to um, Glenda and Kate in particular, and to the co-panelists. This is really interesting. Um, so, let's see Great. Uh, my work addresses bibliography and performance, textuality, and orality through a methodology that I name ethnobibliography. Uh, and I'm going to begin with a, a few comments on this term um, before turning to how I employ this method in my research on shape note singing. Uh, to address questions about race, place, and modernity uh, in American music. Um, I take ethnobibliography to signal an integration of contemporary ethnographic research into the uses to which books are put um, alongside collation and archival research and the like. Um, in invoking this term, I build on a 1986 essay uh, by bibliographer Hugh Amory called The Trout and the Milk, an Ethnobibliographical Talk. Um, I think it's actually a 1985 talk. 
that was then published in 1986. But anyway, um, Amory was thinking of ethnohistory when he coined the term uh, to describe research pairing the methods of historical anthropology with conventional historical research. Uh, Amory analyzed a fragment of a Bible and a Pequot burial amulet to demonstrate that the social function of a book is as critical uh, is, is critical to understanding it as a bibliographic object. Um, Amory's focus on social function builds on you know things like Donald Francis Mackenzie's articulation of the sociology of texts. Um, both argue that social context is important, um, but Amory uh, emphasizes in particular the book's physicality um, rather than the markings on its pages. Um, few scholars have taken up this term ethnobibliography since the trout and the milk. Um, I follow Amory in foregrounding a book's social context in adopting the term, um, but I'm thinking less of ethnohistory and more of ethnographic methods like ethnomusicology um, and oral history, in addition to historical anthropology. I employ ethnographic field work. I conduct oral history interviews, and I analyze historical interviews uh, and field recordings in the archive. Um, in my research into the lived experiences surrounding printed musical texts. Employing these methods helps me assess how practitioners and scholars' framing of the relationship between shape note tune books and the activity of participatory community singing from these books has affected the associations of a participatory music culture rooted in these texts with race, place, and modernity in the 20th century. Um, debates about the relationship between material forms featuring musical notation and performance practices have been central to the study of shape note singing. Um, shape note singing is a, is a contemporary community a cappella hymn singing activity with 18th century roots. Um, uses oblong hardcover tune books featuring three and four part scores uh, printed with music notation meant to make sight singing easier. Uh, shape note singing was primarily practiced in the rural south from the mid 19th to late 20th centuries at participatory community events called singings, uh, though it's now active throughout the United States and beyond, um, it's long, was long ignored by music scholars for the most part. Um, largely understood by um, practitioners as a sacred musical act, uh, the style first received scholarly attention through its vocalization, its characterization as a folk music. Uh, this process venerated ornamentation, oral tradition, modal characteristics, and other perceived deviations from written notation as evidence of the music's value. George Pullen Jackson, a folklorist and professor of German, uh, published a sequence of books and articles on shape note singing from the 20s through the 50s, and this is the first of those articles. Um, Jackson annotated his personal copy of The Sacred Harp, which is at UCLA, and I'm sorry, I don't have pictures of his annotations. Um, uh, uh, when, he, when he attended singing, so he annotated the book actually at singings live. Um, and he evinced his interest in oral deviations from written notation through these annotations, um, such as when he inscribed sharp and natural signs uh, in his copy of the songbook on the song Wondrous Love to indicate his observation that sacred harp singers typically rendered minor songs, which are notated, as you can see here, in the Aeolian mode by singing the sixth scale degree a little higher. So you can see it uh, right there. He's got a little, you know, little accidental in front of that note to show that he was hearing it, um, as he put it, in the Dorian mode. Um, which folklorists often associated with orally transmitted music of the British Isles. Jackson celebrated this deviation from written notation in his writing, presenting the Dorian rendering of now well-known songs like Wondrous Love as evidence of the status as folk song of the shape note music repertoire. 
Shape note singing next emerged in music scholarship in the work of music educators who focused on the shape note system's pedagogical value and its role in the history of music education in the United States. Uh, for music educators such as Irving Wolfe and George H. Kime, shape notes were worthy of attention because they represented an early pedagogical system for sight singing. Music educators and musicologists published essays on early American music tune books and composers in the shape note repertoire in music education journals in the 1950s and 60s before they started appealing, appearing in standard musicology journals. Um, alongside essays like this one are counting experiments, teaching children to sing uh, using shape notes. Unlike folklore scholars who emphasized oral deviations from written music notation, these scholars focused on shape note books' textuality. The timeline and disciplinary context of Sacred Heart's transvaluation as significant to American music studies rests on competing perspectives on the relationship between music um, notation and performance. Uh, I examine the effects of this disciplinary context as the style transformed from a regional practice to a, a key component of American music studies that often comes up in surveys of American music. Um, in oral history interviews and participant observation with contemporary singers, personal copies of the Sacred Harp and related tune books became uh, a frequent focal point of discussion. Singers' stories about these books, their production, and their uses provide insights into their reception and social meaning. Um, Donald and Diane Ross, Sacred Heart singers from Dallas, Texas, connected the book's typography, design, and bibliographic form to fears about the tradition's modernity and continued relevance. The Rosses describe how they favor an edition of the Sacred Heart known as the Denson book, um, which had then recently been digitally retypeset, uh, over a rival edition called the Cooper book, which featured a pastiche of different page designs and typographical treatments accreted over a century or so of revisions. Um, as well as some layout choices made for expediency that, in their view, impede easy set reading. Um, and we'll try to listen to a little clip. Why is the Denson book? Well, compared to the older editions of the cover book, you know, it's just so much better because you didn't have all those et cetera, and, you know, and they didn't have very many verses to a lot of the songs in there. And, you know, it was just, it was more user-friendly. Well, and all of our teaching classes is trying to start new groups. It, it was very difficult to do that with, especially professional musicians or people, people who knew music. To, to do that and see, et cetera, what words do I see? And then you had to try to explain. And, and it was really really embarrassing to, to try to use the, the old cover book mm -hmm. in, in promoting Sacred Heart. Yeah, we, we were interested in promoting it, you know, getting new singers and bringing in new singers. And it was just a big frustration. You know, uh, it, it was so much easier. Uh, the Rosses hope to capitalize on Shapenet Music's transvaluation as a system for music education but leftover typographical shortcuts, and here's some et cetera's for you, um, <laughs> amplify a kind of rural bibliographic backwardness that impedes uh, presenting the Cooper version of the tune book as modern and user-friendly to contemporary musicians. This burden for the Rosses could be eased through the careful editing and digital retypesetting involved in producing the Denson book. Um, in my own interviews and past conversations I encountered in the archive, singers articulated complicated relationships with oral deviation from written notation valued by folklorists. 
White music scholar William H. Talmadge interviewed elderly black Sega Harp singers Thomas Y. Lawrence and Bertha Harper Lawrence in May 1968. Talmadge commented that he had, quote, noticed a black singer, uh, well, noticed a, a black singer named Dewey Williams um, wasn't singing exactly like it's written in there. In response, uh, T.Y. Lawrence insisted that correct singing is much better. Lawrence's drawing on Williams's remark from the previous night cast his distinction in racial terms. And this is, um, there's another uh, audio example. It's about a minute long, so that would take us to time. So maybe we'll just look at it briefly. Um, basically, he says that um, he disagrees with Dewey Williams's argument that black people sing better than white people, and he says that black people um, don't sing as correctly as white people, and that correct singing is much better. Um, the, uh, so, in disagreeing with Talmadge's approval of deviation from written music, um, the Lawrences push back against Talmadge's interest in an aspect of the style associated with folklore rhetoric and claims of African origins. They uh, tie their own preferences to whiteness associated with power and access in 1960s South Alabama and a musical feature, Correct Singing, long associated with education and elite culture. In an era when literacy tests were used to deny blacks voting rights, uh, the Lawrences may have had powerful underlying reasons to resist the appreciation of oral tradition that came along with the style's folklorization. These singers invoke discrepancies between written notation and performance practice not as emblems of authenticity that folklore has celebrated, but as markers of racially loaded impropriety. Um, Incorporating anthropological and ethnomusicological research methods into the analysis of shape note editions draws disciplinary intimacies, I think, with performativity and orality into conversation with the textual. These examples show ethnobibliography's potential to transform our understandings of critical and highly charged issues that orality and performance expose in musical texts, such as the relationship of race to folklorization. An ethnobibliographical approach has the potential to expand our picture of the performed meaning of a book's bibliographic details, connecting a text's materiality to race, place, and other cultural currents. Thank you, folks. I, too, want to thank Glenda for organizing this session and all of the speakers. These were just great papers. It's so exciting to hear them performed. Um, I have a written text, but now I'm going to kind of go off script. I think that's appropriate in, uh, in this session. Try to save a little more time for questions. What I've set up are some reactions um, that want to honor these papers by um, reminding everyone of the really hard work that has to happen before you can even get to the point of talking about performance in the ways that we've heard today, and especially to celebrate the interdisciplinarity of this session. You know, back in the day, a session on performance would have been kind of the ghettoized music session with um, song and dance, um, nicely timed after lunch, and we've had a lot of that. Um, but the problem is that there's these disciplinary um, priorities that have tended to isolate and even devalue performance as a subject of scholarly inquiry, and I want to underscore that. 
Um, of course, bibliographic systems do contribute to this by segregating music and special libraries. We've heard about recordings, how difficult they are to access, even theatrical scripts that end up, you know, cataloged with literature, right, and novels. Um, that's part of the problem, but I think at the heart of the problem is the otherness of performance itself and the really uneven ways that have developed over time to register sound, speech, um, gesture, and choreography as texts. I mean, performance just throws up a bibliographic conundrum. Now, some of the subjects we've heard today in the context of a book history conference are familiar. Um, sheet music, right? Um, your shape note, part books, the unusual form of the game cards, um, you know, this is a field book history that's always sought meaning in the material forms in which texts are conveyed. And smaller and offbeat sources have, if anything, really been privileged here. So I think that's drawn people in, and that's a good thing. But today's panel really does more than just slice through the documentary ephemera that have always served as scripts for performance. And I see these papers as really reversing the disciplinary relationship between text and performance by beginning in performance. These papers originate in voices, in bodies, gestures, and acts. And then they move on, and this is such an important step, to critique the um, problems that end textualizations have posed for performance studies and for bibliography. And this is really, really important work. Um, it's not so surprising that most of these papers examine musical performances. Um, when you think about other kinds of performance, music's always really been privileged precisely because it requires an extra form of literacy, right? That comes out in the shape note, too. Um, and with that, you get you know, music bibliography, specialized editing, right? It's kind of super textual in a way. Um, and as a contrast to that, what we haven't heard about today, interestingly enough, is dance. Um, and this is a performing art that even today has no standardized notation. It's entirely resisted textualization, and it's a really good example to keep on the horizon here. If you walk through the GV section of any library that employs the Library of Congress cataloging system, where those dance books are um, shelved, you'll see that it's tiny compared to the M's, the ML's, and the MT's for music scores, music literature, music theory. And in fact, the subclass for dance, which is leisure and recreation, comes at the very end of a class of books, the G's, on geography, anthropology, and recreation. So think about that for performance. Classified with maps, cartography, human ecology, folklore, and manners and customs, dance and even the whole of anthropology is a follow-on to maps, subsumed to a subject category marked by the nonverbal and ahistorical. The LCC classification system developed in the 19th century imagines folk cultures as static, ritual as unchanging, 
dance as traditional and elite culture as built on a kind of human bedrock as fixed as geographic formations. Now we see tensions over classification expressed in Jesse Kahlberg's paper on Sacred Heart songbooks. Um, as you, you have this sort of tension between the scholars who want to categorize shape note singing as folkloric and the attempts of practitioners to shelter the repertory from ethnic readings by modernizing and cleaning up the scores. Is it G or M? Is it folklore or music you know, that's segregated, in fact, from anthropology and ethnography to a certain extent? Now, so I see this panel as exploring the gaps and the, the things that have marooned anthropology, in fact, in a, a class away from history and um, literary studies. But I also see this panel as um, charting really new territory by pushing back the definitional boundaries of bibliography itself. And here's where Andrew Ferguson's paper leads the way in really provocative um, ways that I found as someone who works on print, um, for me, I thought of Michel de Certeau's reading as poaching. I mean, here's an, an evidence for what those of us want to imagine about the creativity of readers, the way they reinvent things. And it also speaks to, again, disciplinary priorities that privilege authorship. Um, you have all of the confusion of production What's the object of study now, and who are the authors? Um, so that's beautiful, and that's useful, I think, has takeaways for everyone. Um, as I, a lot of these papers, um, by expanding um, what we mean by text, what we can study in bibliography, um, show that that process of expansion is deliberately provocative. It's not the end in itself. It raises new questions. And it results from a critical move that um, aims to hold performance at the center of study. And that comes out especially in Leslie's paper and Laura's, well, and, I mean, actually all of them, really. Um, I found um, Laura's paper, when you take speech as your subject and um, try to hold on to that, you confront the magnetism, and you spoke about this so eloquently, of this deeply, deeply entrenched historiography that privileges the written above all else. And you want to hear those voices as voices, not just as raw material that awaits transcription and then assimilation to historical narratives. And again, for me, the takeaway was that it's a, a challenge to recognize the subaltern position that's occupied by all speech, all voices, and orality in an historiographic tradition that has writing in the term itself, right? Historiographia. Um, when we move from texts to performances, race emerges as an important subject. It's not, again, by chance that, it, that we're talking about that here. Um, performers complicate the meanings of texts. I mean, your paper showed that so beautifully as you go back into the history of the frog song. Um, and here, you know, again, the wannabe dance scholar talking, the fact that you want to begin with the body of May Irwin. That's so important that we can't even start to talk about the voice 
or the texts without beginning with her physical presence on stage and the way that she managed to subvert, from what I understand, conventions of theater through her compelling performances. Um, and so, you know, last week in the run-up to the conference, I, I guess I took this as an opportunity to wonder why is it that performance hasn't been more present um, in in book history conferences? Why haven't people been doing this already? Um, especially, you know, Bethany's paper on the musical card decks, it's such an obvious example for a history of a discipline. Um, if you think back to D.F. McKenzie and Roger Chartier's Communities of Readers and the communication circuit, I mean, all of this has um, been very much pushing toward the history of reading. And cards like yours um, have everything to say about salon culture and elegance. Um, you know, how did those slip through the cracks? Why haven't they been talked about, especially here? And I just want to um, open up the discussion by suggesting that collectively we might only now, partly through um, media and the way our um, academic lives um, can access um, sound, voice, performance, video, we might actually be at a point where bibliography can grapple more synthetically and across the disciplines with performance um, and texts and performers. So thank you all for your papers. Um, brave new world ahead. I mean, a good brave new world. <laughs> Do we have questions for any of the panelists? Yeah, Caroline. Thank you for putting this together. It was fantastic. Uh, thank you for all your um, uh, provocative and interesting and thought-provoking papers. So this question is inspired by Andrew's paper, but I think it could be applicable to all of you. Um, one of the things I kept wondering uh, was who was the bibliographer in your paper? And um, by the end, I was thinking that the bibliographers are the gamers themselves that they are thinking through, like, what is the game? What are all the iterations? What are all the versions I've seen? What is the code? You know, sort of maybe making a numerative bibliography in their own way through all of these, these things, right? And then they're, they're adding in their own, their own addition to that. So they're both the bibliographer and, in some way, the author, the creator as well. And so I was wondering if that is perhaps, uh, coming back to your question about um, why has performance needed bibliography, uh, like, to me, that seems like perhaps one of the most, most um, at this moment, right now, uh, interesting ways to think about performance as, as, as reminding us or making us wonder as, as um, in the world of bibliography, if, if there's been too much separation between the bibliographer and the text, and what happens when we bring them together and think of them as mutually constitutive in some ways, right? Like, and so I guess the question is, for Andrew, is that a crazy idea? And for the rest of you, is that also a way to think about things like music, about um, dance, about drama, as that the, the performer, the actor, the dancer, the singer, in some ways are um, kind of engaging in a bibli bibliographic method as they produce their own moment of creativity? 
creativity. As regards to Miley said, I think that yeah, the argument is, is, is the community that requires for there to be a community. And maybe to the to the to the point of the performance being somewhat separated from book history, you know, it's it's sort of hard to you know, it's sort of hard to have a community embrace when like when you're being held at arm's length. So that would, you know, it requires a lot. It just requires I think some affinity building and and you know just good bold organizing in some cases, and that will that will sort of let that happen maybe. Mm -hmm. I would say in the case of my cards, the selections of music were very deliberate, and they reflect the popular songs of that time, and so they were attempting to create a vocal canon of music for England, and the cards contributed to that project. So in a way, that's a bibliographic task, because he's promoting certain songs over others. And the repertoire changes, too. There's mostly just blues in the second collection. So it just reflects what is selling, what is most popular at the time. You know, um, descriptive bibliography was always trying to take control of materials that couldn't be accessed directly. Um, I think as we move into digital domains, and those of us who work with um, written documents of all song, um, sorts have searchability directly and access directly to things. Um, who's doing the describing and why they're doing it and what those catalogs are um, becomes more interesting as a question. And I think it's a really smart thing to focus on. Okay. Um, thank you again uh, for organizing this. I, I wanted to, um, to point a bit to the relevance of uh, the act of reading when we when you write about performance because we have very little to like to grasp. Um, but I guess inspired by Bethany's paper, uh, reading is an act of imagined orality. Like with an AU. when we read a musical score, we are imagining the performance of it. Um, and in the case of, of the Pocket Companions, that's fascinating because whose orality are we talking about? Um, in the case of Pocket Companions, my idea is that that's the orality of the printer. Uh, that, that the very printing ideology that's, that's going on in England since the 1720s basically inscribed that kind of orality over these Pocket Companions and like introducing a canon of, of, of vocal scores. That's, um, <coughs> but I guess the general question is again, like when we write about performance, whose orality are we thinking about? Like is our own orality, the orality of like you know, the people we are writing about, the objects we are writing about, if they have their own agency somehow. I, I mean, I agree with you that I think that anything smarts orality is the one that probably comes through the loudest. But it is a real challenge to, to think about how that would be different depending on who was singing those songs, especially when you don't have any exact evidence as to who was singing them. So you're using the music as sort of a catch-22 because you're using the music to try to answer that question that would most easily be answered if you knew who was reading that music, right? So you're trying to kind of extract the author out of the music, which is interesting, though, and useful. And I think it ties in with what Kate was saying in her closing in her remarks. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, there's definitely a strong publisher's presence there that is often overlooked, right? Because we just think about the performers and not the person who selected the music in the first place. Thinking too about that, I like your comment about the ephemera that serve as the scripts for these uh, performances. <coughs> 
the way that those are cataloged and described, right, then, then it, it narrows who, who's, the, who's the creator, right? Um, and, and what happens if you open that up and think about, well, how, I mean, how, how could you even catalog so that the, the notions of uh, other people who, who make that music in space, right, in a salon setting, um, kind of possible to imagine, but really interesting. And there's something similar, I think, in, in archival questions. Um, you know, people in archival studies are thinking about, you know, we have these collections, and they're named for the particular person who collected them or who, who received these documents um, into their own collections. And, and that those are, that's how things are named um, and in, in cataloging them you know, bibliographically up to stem. Right, so there are these questions about how, how could we think about creators in this more collective sense that I think the, the, the gaming Of, the, of a strange stone on the ground. 
being a part of the community is that beyond taking field notes and recording, you know, the sound or something like that is is getting a, a feeling of how the how the community is, is self-documenting, you know, and, and the book is always at the center of what's happening. Um, and and as the book is revised periodically, there's a lot of activity that kind of happens in and around the cities that weighs in on that. So mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know that I just answered your question at all, but there's, <laughs> that's all there's, there's, Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of um, other kinds of I guess ethnographic fieldwork kind of <coughs> into how do you think of people's relationship to the text and the social media. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks. Uh, this is for anyone. Like, um, just the the bulk of these that had um, sort of uh, a changeability with, with the textual notations that I saw across. Um, what's how would you think about spontaneity as being a key concept here in thinking about orality versus uh, a mixed bibliographic So, so in, in the Erwin Frog song, I mean, one aspect that I, I talked about briefly at the end is that now this has become a kind of tradition as a game song for children that is completely spontaneous, all about spontaneity, all about sort of the moment on the playground at the party among your very closest friends. And so it's really, that's the sociability of the song and the activity of the game, which is a kind of hand clapping game, is what, it, what's, what it's about. Not about the song per se, but about that activity and that sociability and that context. And then it become, has become documented, as I mentioned, with, with dozens, hundreds of YouTube videos, YouTube videos where are often parents documenting their children in these contexts here and sort of sharing them with the world, really. And it's like, that's a sort of remarkable aspect of the sort of the, the orality of the legacy of that song that goes back to the 19th century. And the racialized component just and, gets and erased. Yeah, yeah, and the racialized component, well, it gets, yeah, it gets erased from the original one. But, mm -hmm. but I mean, I, it's not, not now, because <coughs> I, I actually learned of this song by my students when I played uh, the song, and my students come up said, I know this song from my childhood. Mm -hmm. And they did the game song for me mm -hmm. in, in the classroom, and I was just floored by this. And, mm -hmm. it, and, and I thought at first it was primarily African-American women or young women, but it's not just that, although it, that, that seems to be an important point there. So it's both, at least in Tennessee, lots of, lots of young women know this song from their childhood. Okay. There's a sort of joke in the communities, especially for marathons, where they'll do a, they'll be playing the game and something weird will happen and they say, like, oh, that's never happened before. And that's the joke. Um, it's like, is it, when you're playing in a lot of settings like that, like, you know, invariably something new will happen, but occasionally something that's never happened before reveals a way that the game can be forced to do something differently, and then they go and do a lot of research and try to make it do that every time because it actually <laughs> does things better than they had been doing it before. <laughs> so it produces its own spontaneously, almost like we're I think we could take our performance cue from our neighbors. And <laughs> I'd like to thank the panelists. This was a great discussion and the audience for talking. Thank you.